We are continuing on through this kind of short, month-long sermon series we're doing through Psalm 23, uh, which is a very, it's a short uh, but very rich and impactful poem that King David wrote centuries and centuries ago. And, and what we've seen so far, I would say, is that he says about himself and about us that we are, in fact, sheep, and we are following some kind of shepherd. And we've been talking about uh, that, that Jesus is the good shepherd who wants to lead us into full life. And, and that full life is not necessarily always easy or without struggle or pain, but we've seen that full life is actually found in being close to the shepherd, in, in walking with him through the valleys of life, and that our future glory with him actually far outweighs our current pain or suffering. Not that it's meaningless, but that the future glory outweighs it. And so today we're going to be concentrating on verse 5 in Psalm 23, uh, which in and of itself is loaded with good things for us uh, that I want to kind of mine out of it today. So if you have a copy, have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Psalm 23. Uh, if not, there's copies of Scriptures on the back table there. You can grab those. Uh, but I want to do what we did the first week with this, is we're going to put it up on the screen in sort of a different uh, translation, and I want, to, I want to read it together. And so we're going to read just kind of one verse at a time and... Uh, we always end up reading these like robots, or like, the Lord is my shepherd. Like, feel free to enunciate it however you would like, but uh, I will do my best to kind of lead us through this. I remember before I said that Adonai is, is sort of, uh, Jewish people would never write the word Yahweh, or they would write it, but they wouldn't read it. So they would translate it as Adonai, which is like my Lord. It was a little bit more vernacular. Um, and so why don't you read this with me? A Psalm of David. Adonai is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He has me lie down in grassy pastures. He leads me by quiet water. He restores my inner person. He guides me in right paths for the sake of his own name. Even if I pass through death-dark ravines, I will fear no disaster, for you are with me. Your rod and staff reassure me. You prepare a table for me, even as my enemies watch. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows." Goodness and grace will pursue me every day of my life, and I will live in the house of Adonai for years and years to come. As I said, we're going to be concentrating on verse 5 today, and uh, I just want to kind of read it in the NIV, which is what I normally read and preach out of. David says, "'You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David here is saying a few things that I think sound poetically nice, like it sounds nice, it reads well in a poem, uh, they, they sound calm and serene, and, and if you simply read through this, presence of my enemies, there's a table, oil, cup, great. Like if, if you read it like this, you kind of miss the real depth of the truth that he's proclaiming and the intensity of life that happens in these moments that he's describing. Like think with me about this for a moment, or maybe better yet, picture it. If you're being pursued by some enemy of some sort, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a bad guy, maybe it's a coworker who's after you in some way, maybe it's, maybe it's one of your in-laws, maybe it's an ex, uh, you're being chased by some enemy and, and you call out to someone for help. You, you look for an avenue to run down, you call 911, no matter how dramatic you might be picturing this, I'm not sure, but uh, you vent and you rage to a friend about this terrible enemy and, and that's bothering you and you ask them for their help and, and their advice. And, but then here's what is down the avenue. Here's what the 911 call leads you to. Here's what your friend points you to. A table. 
with food on it, to a meal. You're running for your life. You're running for your own sanity, for your, for your emotional well-being, for your emotional health. You're looking for a way out, for help, for a break, for someone to understand, and they point you to a table. Right? So when you think about it, we just read that as a poem. You're like, oh, that sounds nice. When you think about it, you're like, that's crazy. This is weird and maybe not necessarily helpful. We need to dive into this and figure out what David is talking about and what it means for us today. Because we all have enemies. We have adversaries. We, we have people that, and things that are against us. And, and we all could use something to run to, right? But a meal? This is strange. So I would say this. First off, you need to know your enemy, right? You need to know who your enemy is. And, and I believe that the enemies of humanity uh, could be boiled down, compiled, summarized into one thing. Anything that takes away from the full life that God wants for you in Jesus, that God wants for you in the gospel. Going all the way back to Eden, back to the shalom that we had in the Garden of Eden, this is what God wanted for us, but this is what the enemy of God did was take away from the full life, encourage us to walk away from the full life that God had given to humanity. The enemy of humanity is actually a restricted life, a shrunken life, a lack of of full life in God, in Jesus. And up to this point in our series on Psalm 23 and on most Sundays here, we mention this idea of full life that we find in the gospel. Jesus said, I've come to give them life and give it to the full, right? So in my mind, if that's what Jesus says to humanity, that he's come to give them full life, I think the enemy of humanity says, I've come to take their life. I don't want to give them full life. I want to give them a restricted life. What John 10 says is that the enemy is a thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy and restrict. Now, there's a ton behind all of that that I don't have time to go into today, but for for lack of a better summary, I would ask that you understand that God wants to give us a full life, the enemy wants to restrict our lives, and if you stick around here for long enough, you'll hear us talk about this over and over again and better define it. But I would argue uh, that we have three primary enemies as it were, in our lives, in our daily lives, in our, in our work lives, in our friendships, in our, in our marriages, whatever it is. We have these three enemies that we need to think through kind of how we will respond to them. And the first enemy I would say that we have is ourselves. Our first enemy is really ourself, our, our own flesh and brokenness, our own sin, our own idolatry of putting something else on the throne than God that actually wars against us and takes away from full life. So, some examples, right? Our own flesh is envious and causes us to hate someone, causes us to resist someone, to despise others, and it eats at us like an ulcer. That's not full life, right? I mean, like, this is something happening inside of us that's taking away from full life. Lust causes us to cheat on our spouse. That's not full life. Anger causes us to yell and scream at someone, our kids, our friend. That's not full life. Pride makes us think that we're better than others. That's not full life. And I would say a mix of the next enemies I'm going to talk about ends up in shame inside of us that comes out of us that restricts full life. So we need to deal with ourselves. But we also need to deal with others, right? The world around us. Like other people also have flesh and brokenness. Other people have sin and idolatry inside of them that wars against us and them, mind you, from having full life. So someone, has, someone else has an envy problem and seeks to take your position at work right? 
That's not full life. Someone else has brokenness and pain from past relationships that migrate into their relationship with you, their friendship, their marriage, whatever it is. Their brokenness is now affecting you. That's not full life. Someone else has an anger problem and they cut you off on the highway, they give you the finger, they yell at you, scream you, whatever, is it a ball game, like whatever. Like that's not full life. That's a robber of full life. That feels like an enemy. So we have ourselves, we have others, and then I would say we have the adversary. Okay, we have the Satan as he's described in Scripture. Both Hebrew and Greek, the, the enemy of humanity, the enemy of God, is called the adversary. It gets translated Satan, it's the adversary or the tempter. Satan is both against you and against God and against me and against the church, and he's constantly warring against us and tempting our flesh, tempting other people's flesh to walk away from full life and to live a restricted life. Scripture says that the adversary is like a roaring lion that roams around seeking to devour people. The, advers- the, the adversary of God is, and humanity has always whispered lies into our ears, into our spirits, offering us life and power and status and security, when all along it's a lie that leads us down a path of slavery, that leads us down a path of restriction and brokenness, that leads to systematic injustice and racism and violence and oppression. The adversary, I would say, works individually, works corporately, and works nationally to restrict and destroy humanity. Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers in a spiritual world, these dark powers. So our enemies are ourselves, other people who are dealing with their own flesh and brokenness, and I would say ultimately the adversary of God, the the ultimate anti-good shepherd, Satan himself. So what do we do about our enemies? Right, what do we do about these people, ourselves, the, 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 the Satan, the adversary? Scripture says that about our own sin, our own temptations, we're to flee from them. We're to run away from them as fast as we can. When it comes to others, people who are hurt, harming us or hurting us or restricting our lives, Scripture says pray for them, love them, forgive them. When it comes to the adversary, Peter says resist the adversary, stand firm against him, and he will flee from you. Come on. Like, how do we do that? What does that actually look like in our daily lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our homes? We find our answer in Psalm 23. We do this at the table, at a meal. You've, you've probably all been involved in some sort of game of tag Or uh, if you've seen kids chase one another before, you know that they will run around until, like, somebody gets hurt. Like, just chase each other until eventually somebody falls down, stumbles, gets hurt. Or, like, it just ratchets up the intensity. Like, as parents, you're like, stop doing this, stop doing this. Like, stop doing it, it's going to get worse, stop, stop, stop. And they just will keep chasing each other. Well, I've tried to talk to my own kids about this before. I'm like, you know where you should run? To me. Right here. Right here. And just stop running. Stop running, come and be by me, because guess what? The chase can't continue, can it? Because you've stopped running and you're with me. Sit down, stand still, stop running. Like, I will protect my kids, right? Like, you would protect a kid if they ran to you and said, this person's chasing me, help me. So what does David point to here? What does he point out? He's talking about this, this good shepherd who prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David is saying, in the midst of dealing with my enemies... In the midst of dealing with King Saul, who has tried to take my life twice. In the midst of dealing with Absalom, his son, who has tried to take his throne out from under him. In the midst of uh, of this unrest in his life, he says, I find rest 
at the table of the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, the the word there for adversaries in Hebrews has a bunch of different connotations to it if you look into it. But one that I found interesting, it says says this, to bind, like, okay, the root word of adversary, okay? To bind, to tie up, be restricted, narrow, scant, or cramped. Like this, this getting smaller. David is saying, as my enemies are closing in on me, restricting me, cramping me, squashing me, making me smaller and smaller, the good shepherd invites me to a table. He prepares a table for me. And what happens at a table? Like, think about this. When you're invited to a table, what happens? Our lives are enlarged. We get fatter, right? Like, we go and we eat and we get bigger and we indulge and it's good and we take part in it and it's, it's an enlarging of life. We're blessed by food and drink and laughter. The presence of the host who is there serving us puts us at ease that we can rest. So, like a child, we are called to stop running and sit at the table of the good shepherd who is serving us, putting us at ease and offering us food that enlarges and enhances our lives. Friends, I would argue that we resist the adversary, we resist Satan and cause him to flee when the place that we run to, when the place that we go to, is the table of the shepherd. We can pray for our enemies and love others and forgive others when we find that our full life is actually at the table of the good shepherd rather than in them. And we can flee from our own fleshly sin and temptations and idolatry and find success in overcoming them by running to the table of the good shepherd. And what do we find at the table? What does David describe as he goes on in verse 5? He says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup is overflowing. It's saturated. It's overflowing. So we get to the table, we, we find that the shepherd anoints our head with oil, he, he overflows the cups. Well, all right, what's that about, right? It reads well in a poem, but again, what is this about? So I want you to imagine something with, with me about this. Imagine you're, you're, you're working in the yard, you're, you're mowing the lawn, you're doing yard work, you're getting all sweaty, it's the middle of the summer, or like you've just done some like intense workout. I don't do that. I don't even like to work in the yard. But anyway, I do sweat now and then. So imagine you're sweating and, and you're, you're just, you stink, and somebody shows up at your house and says, I've made you dinner. Come sit with me. Come be with me. You probably have two thoughts. I don't know which order you'd have these thoughts in, but one would be, great, I don't have to make dinner. I'm glad you're here. The second would be, I stink, I can't be near you. Like, I don't want to be in your presence. Well, in, in ancient Middle Eastern societies, and, and even still today, uh, like I've said before, I've lived in Jordan, I've done missions trips, like there are cultures that don't deodorize as intensely as we do. It's a little bit stinky when it gets hot. Like, when we, when we lived in Jordan, we basically gave up on deodorant. It was like, we're just going to stink. Like, we're just going to sweat all day, and this is what it is. Well, in Middle Eastern societies, before deodorant, before all these things, when there wasn't a whole lot of these things to go around, people were hot and sweaty, and they would come into dinner and be filthy and stink. And the host would anoint them with this type of, like, perfumed oil. And the scent would fill the room rather than the scent of their stink. And it would emanate out into the room, and the dinner guests would be able to smell perfumed oil rather than one another. Maybe that's what David's talking about here, that you anoint my head with oil at the table. Or on another level, it could be David is talking from a a shepherd's perspective. Shepherds will take this oily kind of tar mixture, and they will put it on the nose of sheep. 
during the summer season, which if you remember from the valley, this is now the summer season that they're going up into the tablelands. And they would take this tar and this oil and they would put it on the, shepherd, uh, on the sheep's nose. And what it would do is it would catch these flies. These flies try to fly up the nasal passages of the sheep where they lay eggs and it starts to make them go blind. It makes them go crazy and they ram their heads into posts or trees and they actually start to die because of this. But they put this oil on there and it prevents the flies from being able to do this. Maybe that's what David is talking about. Or maybe, if you remember David's story, maybe he's talking about the oil of anointing that Samuel put on him. Samuel the prophet came and anointed him and said, you're going to be king over Israel, giving him authority and the calling of God on his life to act as the royal representative for the children of God. In any case, David is saying that when he comes to the table, to the feast that the good shepherd has prepared for him, the shepherd anoints him with oil. When we are running from the enemy of our own flesh, when we're running from the enemy of ourselves, from our temptation, from our own stink, from our own sin, we run to the table of the good shepherd and he anoints us with the perfumed oil of forgiveness that covers our stink, that covers our grime. We find rejuvenation. We find that he's taken away the shame and the doubt and he's covered over it. And he's taken life and he's given it to us and restored us to it. Rather than living a restricted life of sin and shame, he restores us to full life with a meal at the table and an anointing of forgiveness. When we run from the enemy of other people and their brokenness and sin that has harmed us or injured us or is annoying and making us crazy like these flies in our lives, we run and sit at the table of the good shepherd and he covers us with this oil that those pesky flies try to, try to get into our minds and make us crazy. He covers us with this oil, and he covers our hearts, and, and he says, your identity's in me. It's not in their brokenness and what they think of you. It, it, it's, in, it's in me. I'm covering you in this. Or when we resist the adversary, the Satan, when we resist the tempter, the accuser of mankind, who's seeking to kill and steal and destroy and restrict our lives, we run to the table of the good shepherd where he prepares a meal for us and anoints us with oil and says, you are now with me. You are now mine. You are now royalty. A royal priesthood, an heir to the kingdom, a princess, a prince of the king. What can that old adversary do to you? You have power and authority and a calling now as a royal representative, as part of the priesthood of believers. But wait, it gets even better than just this oil. We go to a cup now that's overflowing. He says that rather than having a cup that's drained and empty and dry, David says, at the table with the good shepherd, he finds a cup that has been filled to overflowing. The Hebrew here indicates that it's, it's saturated to the point of overflowing. Rather than being restricted, it's saturated and full. When, when the scriptures were being written, Particularly in the Old Testament, you see this, that there were these two cups that were often mentioned. There was a cup of blessing and full life and goodness. And if you were living a good life, you had the cup of blessing. But there was also the cup of condemnation, the cup of, of wrath, of the cup of God's discipline. Here, David is saying that in the presence of his enemy that is trying to cramp in on him, trying to restrict him, trying to take life from him, The good shepherd prepares a meal for him, anoints him with oil, and gives him a cup of blessing, of goodness, of an enlarged life at the table. 
At the table with the good shepherd, he finds a cup that rejuvenates and refreshes like a fine wine. This is, this is again, indicative of a life that, that is at rest despite being hounded by enemies. When our own flesh is <clears throat> tempting us and saying, find rejuvenation over here in this cup. Find it over here in, in, in lust or in envy or in pride or bitterness. David is encouraging us to pull a chair up to the table of the good shepherd and find life in the cup that Jesus offers. When the enemy, that is other people, and their brokenness and sin is drying us out and sucking the life out of us, we run to the table of the good shepherd and find our saturation in the full cup of his blessing and provision. When the adversary is whispering in our ear, saying, there isn't enough to go around. You better get yours while the getting's good. You better bury others. You better win the argument. You better come out on top. We resist him by drinking from the cup of the good shepherd at his table. Friends, we need to ask the all-important question, what is the table of the good shepherd for us today? Where do we find this meal? Where do we drink from this cup? Where do we find this anointing oil? Where does it come from? What am I always going to land on? It comes from the gospel. It comes from Jesus. Our good shepherd is Jesus who loves us and serves us and is the great host at an amazing dinner party prepared for us in the presence of all of these enemies. Jesus lived his life on earth battling these enemies, all three of them, resisting the urge to sin from within inside of himself, resisting temptation, it says. We see in his life that he goes toe-to-toe with the adversary, with the tempter in the desert, where Satan offered Jesus leadership and blessing and honor if Jesus would simply turn over a little bit of authority to him. And Jesus resisted the adversary and the tempter and found full life in the presence of God's promises and his word. He had no sin in himself and did not give in to the stealing of life to the thief that is the adversary. Jesus battled the enemy of other people's sin and their brokenness. And whether it was the Pharisees and their political and religious corruption, whether it was the enemy of Roman occupation and their corruption, the sinfulness of people around him, he battled against religious legalism that would never allow anyone else to come to the table because they weren't good enough. And instead, he, he looks right at sinful people and he says, come sit with me. Come be at the table with me. He says, your sins are forgiven. Welcome back into the family of God. And friends, even up until his last moments before his crucifixion, do you, do you remember who he was battling with in the last moments? Who was coming against him? It was his own friends, his own disciples. At the Last Supper, the disciples are arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. This fleshly part of them is coming out. Who's going, to be, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus, when you set it up? They were fully caught up in their own flesh and envy and pride. Or there was Peter. It was Peter. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to walk away from me. And Peter goes on to abandon him like a terrible, unloyal friend. Or there was Judas, who'd betray him for 30 pieces of silver. I don't believe in him. I don't believe, yep, yeah, take him away. And what did Jesus do in the midst of this, in the midst of this betrayal, in the midst of this abandonment? He invites them to the table anyway. He served them a meal. Do you see it, friends? While the enemies of God were closing in on Jesus, while they were cramping in on him and restricting his life, squeezing it out of him, he invites them to the table with him. 
He gives them a meal. He serves them wine. He serves them food. He washes their feet, literally and figuratively, cleansing the stink off of them. And eventually, he would give up his body, and he would give up his blood, the bread and wine poured out for those disciples who would abandon him and us and all of our sinfulness and fleshliness. He's the good shepherd that came to give full life by losing his life. He drank the cup of wrath rather than the cup of full life. Friends, we, myself included, are the betrayers. We're the abandoners, and we're the sinful and the stinky and the broken enemies. We are the others (laughs) that we find in our own lives. We so often spot sinfulness and brokenness in other people and barely see it in ourselves. But guess what? It's in all of us. Ultimately, the adversary closes in and closes in and restricts Jesus' life to the point of, of going to the cross. The ultimate restriction is put on him, right? It says that Jesus dies on a cross. God is apart from him. Satan has restricted his life to the point of death on a cross, restricted all the way to the grave, looking like the adversary has won in taking away life. But what we find is that three days later, right, that that Jesus is raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit inside of him raises him from the dead, restoring him to full life forever. In so doing... All of what Jesus said and promised and did is proved right, is proved true. His promises are proven to be reliable and trustworthy. If he said he's come to give full life and God has raised him from the dead, why would I ever doubt it? Why would I ever look elsewhere for my satisfaction? Why would I look for a meal anywhere else? So what does it mean to come to the table of the Good Shepherd today? What does it mean to come to the good shepherd Jesus when we are facing the enemies of ourselves from other people and the enemy of the adversary himself? I think it means that when Satan is attacking and distracting and tempting and restricting, we run to the table of the body and the blood of Jesus, crucified on a cross for humanity, and believe that we don't need to turn over authority to the adversary any longer that his ways lead to restricted life and heartache and slavery. At the table of Jesus, we find that we are royalty, sons and daughters of God. The oil of royalty has been poured over us and into us by the presence of the Holy Spirit that never leaves so that we can, by the power of the table, by the power of the host of the table, by the power of the gospel, tell the adversary where he can go. Straight back to hell. We have the authority to do that. We are royalty in God's kingdom. It means that when, when others, when, when a coworker, when that in-law that drives you crazy, when your spouse or a friend or, and their brokenness and sin and, and their, 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 their hurt starts to close in on you and restrict you and pain you and comes up against you, you run to the table and you find the host, Jesus, saying two things. In my mind, he says, guess what? You're broken and sinful like they are. Keep that in mind. Have some grace and mercy towards them in the midst of their brokenness. I love both of you equally. But he also says, your identity is in me. 
Your identity is being a son and daughter of God and the victory I've won for you. Don't look to them for your identity. You don't need to find it there. Love them, forgive them, pray for them. But your identity is not in their woundedness that's coming out towards you. I think it means that when we stumble and fall and sin and our brokenness leads us to envy, to lust, to look at things we shouldn't, to overindulge, to yell at kids or a spouse or, or hate people, to drink too much, to have racist thoughts, to ignore the impoverished and the hurting, like all these things that we do on a daily basis, it means we can come to the table and Jesus says, here's my body, here's my blood, Here's my full life that I have offered for you and the oil of forgiveness, the oil of the Holy Spirit that I want to pour into you and take away the stink of this sin and grime of your life. Past, present, future. He says, you're mine. You're mine. I died for you so that you could have full life. I love you. I am for you. Here, eat of my body. Drink of my blood. Take on your royal identity as a child of God. Friends, obviously today, this has to lead to the communion table, doesn't it? I mean, we have to end there celebrating this together. I know it's like graduation season and party season, and I was thinking about how, like, at at a graduation party, you're celebrating what has been accomplished and this great thing that has happened. But in and of itself, the party is a celebration, too. And what we do when we come to the communion table is we celebrate what God has done. Through Jesus, through his death and resurrection for us, the forgiveness of sins and the full life we now have. But we also celebrate together and remind one another of the future that we have together as sons and daughters of the King. One of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, says that when Jesus was leaving earth, he didn't leave his disciples a theory, he gave them a meal. It's so true. So often we want systematic theology, want to box everything up and say, I completely understand. And you know what Jesus said? Here's my body. Here's my blood. Here's bread. Here's wine. Take it. Celebrate me. Celebrate what I have done for you. Find full life. Don't give in to the adversary and the restriction of life anymore. Friends, we're going to take communion together here in a moment. I'm going to ask the team to come up and to, they're going to sing a song for us. And um, it's a song we, we haven't done before. Uh, it's called Communion Song. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, they are going to sing this over us, sort of prophetically. The words are actually sung from the the first-person perspective of Jesus, saying, I've done this for you. And so what I'm going to ask is that I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get up, and we're going to go take communion, the bread and the juice. Uh, I would ask that when you return, just... Let them sing this over you. When you're standing in line, listen to the words. Let them sing it over you. uh, And then we will close the service together. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. uh, And then feel free to go back and take communion. There's two sides there. Uh, You always figure out how to make a line. You're smart, intelligent people. So uh, you can handle that. But uh, would you pray with me? Jesus, you are the good shepherd. Help us believe that. Help us to know that that we can run to you, that we can run to your table. And there we find the the anointing oil that takes away our stink and covers over us and makes us smell beautiful. 
that you look at us and you see us as beautiful, that you are for us, that you make us sons and daughters of God, that we are co-heirs with you of the kingdom now and forever, that we don't need to find our identity anywhere else. And God, from that, it leads to transformation. Would you slowly, well, I pray that quickly you transform us, but I know that it takes a long time. Would you transform us over the years to be more and more like you, to know you more and more and more quickly run and sit at the table? Jesus, today we celebrate your body given for us. We celebrate your blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Help us walk in newness of life and in a full life that you offer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, feel free to go back and take communion together.